Hey everyone, this is another Rockcast where the theme comes from an old magazine for graphic designers. It was out of New York and was started by Seymour Swash and Milton Glazer. The magazine was Pushpin Graphics Magazine and the theme was Food and Violence. This is one of the more original ideas for a theme that magazine produced. I don't own a copy of that issue, but it seemed an odd topic for illustration. I was surprised how easy this show came together. Listen. Two Super 8 reels held in a young boy's hands. The first is a silent comedy of the Keystone Cops. The cops cavort in their undercranked fast-forward bounce. It all ends in a huge pie fight. In the other hand, the boy holds a clip reel of 1930s gangster films. There's plenty of violence in the clips, slapping, punching, shooting, explosions. One scene is similar to the pie fight in the earlier reel. This is a scene with James Cagney pushing a grapefruit into a young actress's face. The Cagney clip is quite famous. It is from Public Enemy. It wasn't originally a silent scene like the Keystone Cops, but Super 8 film didn't have any audio track. When I ran my Super 8 projector as a kid, instead of audio, there were screens of text called title cards for all the dialogue parts. The grapefruit scene is very short, and just listening to it wouldn't do it justice. Here is a description. Cagney enters the scene in striped silk pajamas, and sits down center screen at the end of his breakfast table. He faces the camera. At the left and sitting in profile is actress Mae Clark in a glamorous silk robe with white fur sleeves. As Cagney sits down, Clark moves her hands off the table. Clark is nervous. She smooths her robe and fingers the handle of a china cup. From this angle, when she looks at Cagney, you can hardly see her face. Cagney's hungover. Instead of a lovely breakfast, he wants alcohol. Ain't you got a drink in the house? Well, not before breakfast, dear. He enjoys mocking Clark and imagines sinking her in a well like a bucket. I didn't ask you for any lip. I asked you if you had a drink. I know, Tom, but... Yeah, I wish... Hey, you go down wishing stuff again. I wish you was a wishing well. That I could tie a bucket to you and sink you. The camera angle changes to give a reaction shot of Clark's face. Her feelings are hurt and she wonders aloud if he might have met another woman he likes better than her. Maybe you found someone you like better. The camera returns to the original angle to show Cagney's full face. Her jealousy pushes Cagney's button, and now he is not only poor company, he's furious. He stares hard at her, and a grimace starts to harden his mouth. 
His lips tighten and are curled up. His eyes glance once then twice at a grapefruit in front of him on the table. The grapefruit has been carefully presented, halved in a decorative zigzag. Clark has obviously been trying to create a beautiful domestic environment. Cagney reaches in front of Clark for the grapefruit with his right hand. He turns the grapefruit around with his left hand. He pushes out his tongue. Distaste is in his every movement. He extends the grapefruit towards her cheek and starts to stand up. His arm springs out as he violently pushes the citrus into her face. Her head is pushed out of profile towards the camera. She's forced back into the chair with the hit. Her perfectly waved hair swings, and both her hands raise to her face as her mouth opens in a scream. Her arms remain up to protect herself from any further assault. She looks genuinely surprised. This film was huge in its day, and apocryphal stories grew up around the scene. One was that when Cagney was eating at any restaurant, he could count on some funny bones sending over a complimentary grapefruit to his table. Another is that May Clark's husband would buy a ticket to public enemy screenings just to see the scene where she is assaulted. The actress May Clark said, I'm sorry I ever agreed to do the grapefruit bit. I never dreamed it would be shown in the movie. She believed the scene hurt her standing as an actress. She appeared in films and TVs into the 1960s, but mostly as a background player. I have a theory. To capture some realism, I don't think they told Clark that Cagney was really going to hit her. I think Cagney meant to pull his punch, but didn't totally succeed. I think the actress never trusted Hollywood again. That's a theory. Nearly every Sunday morning, my wife and I make pancakes. There's always too many for only two of us to eat, so we take the extras out to our chickens. The chickens love them some pancakes. This is the poem, Cake, by Todd Colby, as recited by our chickens. Listen. I am so full of cake. If I eat any more cake, I'd have to vomit first. I could eat a cake a day. Sometimes two, three cakes in a single day. I love cake. I can't be any clearer than that. I love cake. I could eat every cake in New York City. I can't even go into bakeries anymore because I'll eat all the cake. I'll say, where's the cake? I love cake. Get me some cake. And they'll say, we know how much you love cake. And we know that you rarely have the money to buy our cake. So you can't come in here because you can't afford the cake. But you love cake. So get out of here. You cannot have any cake. You don't have the money to buy any of our cake. I'll punch someone in the head for some cake. Give me all your cake. I love cake. Give me the cake. Now. I love it. I love cake. Give me your cake. Give me all your cake. I love cake. Give me the cake. Now. I love it. I love cake. Give me your cake. The Chicken Sisters! Miss Broiler, Miss Fryer, Miss Roaster, Miss Caponette, Miss Stewart, and Old Madam Hen. But we're spotlighting Miss Roaster of the Year, measuring in at 14, 15, 14. We're roasting Miss Chicken today on The French Chef. 
Welcome to Dead Air. I'm your host, Martin Mann. My guest today died in 2004, but she can still be seen in countless hours of videotape made from any of the many cooking shows she's hosted for television. She was also the author of many cookbooks, which helped her introduce French cuisine and cooking techniques to the American kitchen. She was an American known as the French chef, but a little while before her death, she also admitted to working for the U.S. government during World War II as a spy. During World War II, everybody was in it. I mean, we were saving the world. There was no question about that. Well, I'm sure you made a great spy. Thanks for your efforts during the war, and welcome Julia Child. I'm delighted and honored to be here, and I didn't realize you had such a beautiful location with a view over Washington. Well, this basement is only 45 minutes from Washington, D.C. Excuse me for saying this, but you are quite tall for a ghost. I see from your bio you played basketball in college. I went to Smith College. Yes, you're not the first Smith College graduate we've had on the show. I recently interviewed uh, Sylvia Plath. Do you enjoy her poetry? Well, that's often asked me. I didn't think they were very good anyway. Too complicated. I quite enjoy her bee poems, but they were some of her last. It was a shame she left us in 63. 1963? Yes. Do I want to go into that? Of course, we have the dangerous situation, I think, particularly among the young artists. We have these dead white college girls who are so angry. You usually don't live after about 30 years. I think that's the medium figure. We have to do a great deal to get people back into the point of view that food is fun and that food is life. What a great outlook you have. I couldn't agree more. With Sylvia, it was like, oh, I have a maiden and nanny, but I still feel like I'm burdened and discriminated against as a working woman. I think I'll kill myself. Being a big, tall person, that I've never been felt discriminated against from being a woman, luckily. In those days, everyone had, an, had a maid, women or wives, didn't do any cooking at all because they all had their maids. And in those days, uh, people never mentioned housewives, whom we sometimes called fluffies. Hmm. Fluffies. Well, you and Sylvia both attended Smith, and you were both dead. Have you ever tried looking her up in the netherworld? How would you do that, anyway? We, had, we invented our own system. Of, if you wanted to find out where somebody was, you called up, and there were lots of little white cards, and they said who he or she was and where, where he was now. So did you look for Ms. Plath? I tried... I finally ended up there in the files. And it was very educational. I was so angry to have found such an awful prohibition. A prohibition against contacting poets? The prohibition was an awful smell in our file. It was described as, as dead babies, strawberries, and camembert cheese. It stunk so much that there was finally was a rule that you could not call up some kind of a nut. So suicides are marked by this bad smell. Interesting. It's a wonder Orson hasn't complained. Let's change the subject to your spying. 
I can see where cooking and spying would be similar pursuits. The smell of burning garlic in the oven heralding danger. Setting off the kitchen smoke alarm, a signal that you've been compromised. The sting in the eyes from chopping onions, which can mean only death. What were your missions like? People are afraid to eat if they feel that the dinner table is a trap. Chicken on a string. Yes, like a latter-day Matahari, your spycraft would naturally turn to poisons or booby-trapped meals. I rather hoped that I would somehow could be a spy. I had an eager body, but I was an inch too tall. Oh, so you didn't slip drugs into foreign operatives also, Buko? If any of us did any funny business, we'd be sent home on the next boat. Then I finally wised up. Uh-huh. Orson, did you have a question for Miss Child? Oh, you have something for her. It's a big dish of peas. Why are you holding out a dish of peas to our guest? She's picked them. Okay. Our engineer has handed Ms. Child a dish of peas, and she has gratefully accepted them. Thank you, Julia. I would never forget the pleasure. Welcome! I'm Julia Child, and today we're going to make a holiday feast, or Les Fêtes d'Holiday, and we're going to start with half-bone chicken, or poulard, demi de saucisse. Chicken like this one. Uh, first, remove the giblets, and you really should save the giblets. They make a fine stock for soup, or you can save the, the liver and fry it up with some onions for a little snack. Or if you have a number of livers, you can make a lovely liver pate, or uh, perhaps a delicious liverwurst which you can spread on a cracker, a Ritz cracker, a saltine. Save the liver. Don't throw it away. I hope I've made my point. Don't throw the liver away. Now, where was I? Oh, yes. Poulard Demi de Sauce. Now, after you remove the giblets and save the you-know-what. Oh, well, anyway, it's time to bone the chicken. Now, for this, you need a very sharp knife. Can't do nothing without a sharp knife. And you place the chicken on its stomach and... Cut along the backbone to the Pope's nose like so. Oh, oh. Now I've done it. I've cut the dickens out of my finger. Well, I'm glad in a way this happened. You know, accidents do. Oh, oh God, it's throbbing. Oh, oh turkey cake, what's it? Yes, a turkey cake can be made of cheesecloth and a chicken bone. Find a pressure point between the heart and the wheel. In this case, the wrist, and cut off the blood. Oh, this is a last resort, however, because you could lose your hand if you tighten it too much. Oh, you're too woozy to tie the tourniquets. Trying to call for emergency help. There's not much time left. Now, every kitchen should have the emergency number written on it somewhere. Oh, this one doesn't. 911. Well, I think 
I'm going to go to sleep now. Bon appétit. Kids, you've just heard one of the funniest skits ever shown on television. But it was a moment in time. I'm old enough to have seen it live that Saturday night long ago. At that time, you didn't need to be an avid viewer of the Julia Child's cooking program to know that Dan Aykroyd was doing a very nuanced impersonation. Cracker, a Ritz cracker, a saltine. Me breathing heavily as I careened around the stage. The skit is based on a sight gag which really doesn't translate to radio. And much of what Mr. Aykroyd is saying as Julia is drowned out by the laughter of the audience. But I would encourage everyone to find the clip. It had to be part of our Food and Violence show. And now the Juicy Truth with Rotwang in number 11. So tonight we are drinking Dan Aykroyd Discovery Series Cabernet Sauvignon. It's from Sonoma County, 2007. We have poured ourselves a generous snifter of wine, and this evening we will be following the lead of the Winecast for Newbie Guide. His last show featured him swirling his wine vigorously throughout his entire 15-minute review. We haven't been that athletic in the past, so tonight we will be swirling more and hope it helps open up the wine. And I'm here with uh, number 11. Hello, Rotway. It's good to have you again. And uh, let me start by asking you a question. What is on the label of this wine? Well, first we have the wonderful name of Dan Aykroyd on it, and it has a microphone on it. The microphone is printed on a shiny, iridescent background. As I move the bottle, I see a rainbow. It's a very simple design, and I like it. What does a microphone have to do with the theme? He was a blues brother, right? The, the microphone has nothing to do with the theme. It, it's Dan Aykroyd's participation in a number of skits on the old SNL that connect the wine to our theme of food and violence. I was trying to think, where did these two things ever coincide? food and violence. And uh, one of the things that um, came to mind was Dan Aykroyd's uh, skit where he played Julia Childs and he accidentally cuts himself <laughs> with a knife while he's boning a chicken and he just ble bleeds everywhere. The other skit I remember him doing was uh, when he acted as the pitch man for the Bassomatic. Do you remember that one? So we know he liquefies a fish and drinks it on camera. He drank a fish. He obviously has a very developed palate. Oh no, you're right. He might have destroyed his taste buds for the laughs. Wouldn't you be surprised if the wine tasted like bass? I heard that Aykroyd was promoting a new line of wines from another wine podcast called the Winecast Girls. They go to more tastings and wine events than we do. Once they mentioned Aykroyd's label, I knew I needed to find it for our show. Unfortunately, we're in Maryland. So we don't have access to all the wines available. We had to go to Virginia, ask about the wine at a large distributor. A few weeks later, they carried this bottle. Number 11, what are we pairing this wine with this evening? That would be Kellogg's Frosted Cherry Pop-Tarts. 
Classy. How many Dan Aykroyd movies can you name? Oh, yeah, you caught me with a mouthful of Pop-Tart. But I think I can name them all. And this is without the aid of IMDb. Or any movie database. And here we go. Dr. Detroit. Trading Places. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Caddyshack 2. My Girl. Driving Miss Daisy. Um, Ghostbusters 1 and 2. Gross Point Blank. Let's see. Oh, my stepmother is an alien. Okay, let me ask you, did I miss any obvious ones? Yes, you did. Okay, I give up. That's all I can name. Oh, oh, oh. I remembered one. 1941. Nailed it. Got them all. I didn't write it all down because he's been in more than 80 movies. Got them all. Next challenge. Not even close. You didn't even mention, you mentioned the Blues Brothers earlier, but he was in the Blues Brothers. All right, now let's rate the wine. What did you think about color? The color for this uh, cab is very good, and let's give it a 10. Yeah, I would say a 10 also, just because I think it's a beautiful color. Deep, rich, burgundy-ish color. Okay, then the next is clarity. We uh, poured half of the bottle into a smaller half-size bottle, and while I was pouring it, I didn't notice any sediments. Clarity is going to get another 10. Okay, now how about the body? I think of body as the mouthfeel that runs from a watery to a syrupy viscosity. So the body would affect the finish and flavor by how long your mouth holds on to the liquid. This is a thing so subtle and subjective it's hard to judge. On the mouthfeel scale between watery and syrupy, I would say it's slightly on the watery side. So I would call this a medium-bodied cab, which is great. I would give it a 9. Fair enough. Uh, what about the aroma notes? I'm, uh, I'm not receiving any clear aroma notes. It has a pleasant smell. There's uh, not the overpowering presence of alcohol that sometimes gets in the way of appreciating a wine for smell. But I have to give it a six. The next category is taste notes. Some research has informed me that this cab is a blend of Cabernet, Merlot, and Carmenere grapes. I've never knowingly tasted the Carmenere grape, so I had to look it up. It said it was closely related to Cabernet grape, but is slightly less tannic. That was my overall impression of this wine. Uh, uh, It also said that this wine was aged for two months in French, American, and Hungarian oak barrels. Part of the storage in barrels and transferring the wine from one barrel to another possibly could have affected the balance in a very positive way. I'm tasting blackberry. It has a little bitterness, just enough. So I'm going to give it pretty good marks for the taste. Eight. Now we come to complexity. What's your score for the complexity of the wine? There's nothing that says the wine has to have complexity, but it is one of our judging categories. I'm going to have to give this the benefit of a doubt and say a six. The acid balance is the next category. Yes, it's it's 
fantastic. I'm going to give it a 10 right away. And the next is the alcohol balance. Do you want me to tell you what the alcohol is? It is 13.5%. I'm going to give it high marks for uh, the alcohol balance, too. Um, maybe not as high as uh, the last category, but let's give it a 9. Okay, the next is price. At $20, would you buy this bottle of wine again? How about a score? As we go through and enumerate all of the other categories, we can decide whether the, it's worth it. And $20 is higher than we like to uh, shoot for. Uh, we like to find a superb bottle of wine for only $10, which has not happened yet. <laughs> it may never happen. I am not disappointed at $20. I don't know if I would go out of my way to get it again unless there was an, an extra reason. Say I knew somebody who was a fan of Dan Aykroyd's. <laughs> I might surprise them with this. For my own wine drinking, I don't know, it's, it's one of the better wines we've had. I think the score will show that. I'm going to say it's definitely worth it. I definitely would buy it again. But uh, $20... I'm, I think it's a little bit inflated because it's uh, being sold by a, a star. He didn't stomp the grapes, but he is an entrepreneur. In his case, with the side businesses he's uh, taken an interest in and their relative success, I'm tempted to think his name actually means something. His endorsement means he's done the legwork for us. I'm going to give it an 8 or a 9. I'm going to go 8. Okay, here's a question for you, Ratwang. He has a couple other wines that he's put his name on. Would you be willing to try those? Oh, that's a very good question. I was trying to track down a, a Pinot. I think maybe he he uh, does have one, but it wasn't available at my local store. I'll keep my eye out for that. And what's the total? The final score is 84 points. That's not too shabby. And thank you, number 11. Until the next time. Goodbye, Rotwang. Mother is drinking to forget a man who could fill the woods with invitations. Come with me, he whispered, and she went in his Nash Rambler, its dash where her knees turned green in the radium dials of the fifties. When I drink, it is always 1953, Bacon wilting in the pan on Cook Street and mother wrist deep in red water, laying a trail from the sink to a glass of gin and back. She is beautiful, unlucky woman, in love with a man of lechery so solid you could build a table on it, and when you did, the blues would come to visit. I remember all of us awkwardly at dinner, the dark slung across the porch, and then mother's dress falling to the floor, buttons tickling like seeds spit on a plate. When I drink, I am too much like her, the knife in one hand and in the other the trout with the belly white as my wrist. I have loved you all my life, she told him, and it was true in the same way that all her life she drank, dedicated to the act itself. She stood at this stove, 
and with the care of the very drunk, handed him the plate. That poem was Frying Trout While Drunk by Lynn Emanuel, read to us today by Number 9. The Rodcast musical bed you're hearing is called Haunted. It's used with the permission of the composer Kim Schutterle. If you have a good idea for a Rotcast theme or a wine suggestion for our review, email your idea to mail at rotcast.com or call the Rotline. The Rotline phone number will be posted at the website or Skype us at CallRotcast. Visit www.rotcast.com to learn more about the wines and link to more content. Listen next time when you will hear... All right, sit down. Let's start from the beginning, all right? Okay, okay. We were, we were up at the top of the world, and, and we saw this shooting star, and we decided to go look for it. But instead of finding the shooting star, we saw this, this circus tent. And that's when we went inside, and that is when we saw those people in those, those pink cotton candy cocoons. Dave, it was not a circus tent. It was something else. What? What? It was a spaceship, and there was these things, these... The, uh, Killer clowns, and, and they, they shot popcorn at us. We barely got away. Killer clowns from outer space. Holy.